just kidding. All right, so Acts 21. Now it came to pass that when we had departed from them and set sail running a straight course, we came to Kos the following day to Rhodes. And uh, just uh, you can kind of see in our map, I was reading this morning and I was like, yeah, we're already on Paul's third missionary journey, which is crazy. I think right at the end of 18, there's like a vague uh, transition where he kind of visits home and then busts back to the field. And so now we're on the third missionary journey. And so we're kind of towards the bottom there on that red line. Anyways, uh, Koss is kind of bottom left on the red line. You know, oh, look what, in the spirit of remembering Lonnie today. Uh, in the spirit We've got Koss here, Rhodes, and so he's going to kind of head that direction. I always wanted to do that. I also need a new antenna on my truck, so I'll be taking that home. <laughs> uh, so just a little bit of geography there. And from there to Patera, and finding a ship sailing over to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we'd sighted Cyprus, we passed it on the left, sailed to Syria, and landed at Tyre. For there the ship was to unload her cargo. And finding disciples, we stayed there seven days. They told Paul through the Spirit not to go up to Jerusalem. When we'd come to the end of those days, we departed and went our our way, and they all accompanied us with wives and children till we were out of the city, and we knelt down on the shore and prayed. And when we had taken our leave, of one another, we boarded the ship and they returned home. And when we'd finished our voyage from Tyre, we came to Tomoles, Ptolemais, greeted the brethren and stayed with them one day. On the next day, we who were Paul's companions departed and came to Caesarea and entered the house of Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven and stayed with him. Now this man had four virgin daughters who prophesied. Uh, so, uh, just a little bit of traveling journal there. Uh, Luke kind of hidden in a hidden way, throws himself in now. He's been on the missionary journey for a few chapters. And, and so he's writing, first person plural, he's with Paul there as they are on the ship. It's just so wonderful to like be followers of the Bible that just everything that it says is backed up historically and geog- uh, geographically. Uh, I don't know if you know, but the Book of Mormon, which makes all kinds of claims, like nothing can be backed up with battles that they said with million people who would die and fight, you know, like there's not even like an arrowhead in these battlefields, you know, and things like that. So it's just a wonderful thing to know the Bible, like in all of its ways, geographically, um, monetarily, um, I'm running out of like fancy words, like florally, like even like the types of flowers and agriculturally, the things that would be. Um, you add the alleys at the end, the agricultural historic warfare alley, um, all of those things, um, backed up by the Bible. It's such an exciting thing. If you have not seen like the Bible versus the book of Mormon, uh, it's on YouTube. It's just a great, um, resource. And so, uh, like for instance, you know, they, I mean, all of these places are on a map and when we fly into Israel, we, um, fly in. Uh, across the Mediterranean Sea there and you pass Cyprus on your left as you're going in and so you might be in a sky ship but you know you can just picture like being Paul and like watching the island of Cyprus go by uh, on your left 
Now, a couple interesting things here that we're going to kind of make note of. In verse 4, there were some disciples in Tyre. Um, Tyre is uh, northern Israel there. It's in the green. Uh, it's actually in like the Syria uh, nation. And so uh, some Christians were there. And for seven days, they were just very hospitable and um, allowed them in uh, to the home and to minister to them. And interesting, they had a word from the Lord there. You'll notice, you might note the word through the spirit in verse four. They told Paul through the spirit not to go up to Jerusalem. So I might just make a little note of that because that's going to be interesting as we go a little bit later on in the chapter and we'll find something similar there. Uh, gotta love verse five that as they're on their way out of there, uh, they accompanied uh, just the whole church, the families, the wives and the children and the men. And they just all went out to the uh, shore where the ship was and they all knelt down on the shore and prayed and um, just neat to not be ashamed to pray in public. You know, it's, it's a special thing when you're in public and there's all kinds of activity around and you take time to worship the Lord and to thank the Lord and the people around like imagine what an interesting thing that is for them to kind of see the prayers happening. Um, but you know, a lot of times whether we're maybe at a branding or something and there's people that are like, I never pray. And all of a sudden I'm praying like, it's just kind of an introduction to spiritual things. You know, um, I was in a staff meeting once here at Calvary and in Prineville and, uh, the carpet delivery guys that come by once a week, came in with these bundles of carpet, you know, rugs. And we were like in the middle of praying, you know, the, oh, 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 oh. it's like, okay, come on in, you know, but just something different that they normally wouldn't see. And it's such a testimony. And it may have taken that long for them, you know, seven days to load the ship and swap out cargo or something like that. But, um, there they were just kind of in the midst of it all kneeling down on the shore and praying. And, uh, then they board the ship, they return home and, uh, had, uh, from Tyre, you can see the map, kind of the direction that they all go. Caesarea is a place we visit when we go to Israel. Uh, heard from our travel agency that things should be good to go for November 2022. So uh, mark that on your calendar and start saving up and I'll have more in, uh, information. It's about $4,300 a person, but um, uh, it's, it's the trip of your life. And uh, will be more to come. So if you can't make this one, that's fine. But you, we will go to Caesarea. It's one of the special, special places on the trip. And we'll see Caesarea later on in like chapter uh, 25, I think, or something like that. Uh, anywho, but uh, while they were in Caesarea, they entered the house of Philip the Evangelist. And you might remember Philip uh, from Acts chapter 6. He was one of the first deacons. And, um, you know, when Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy, I think it's chapter 3, he says uh, that those guys that serve well as deacons obtain for themselves great favor and boldness in the faith. And there's something about, um, you know, being someone who's serving the Lord uh, in obscurity a lot of times and doing kind of the nitty gritty stuff. That is, you're serving, you just begin to like, you know, a lot of times when you're serving, you're praying. A lot of times when you're serving, you're serving with an eye open to what needs to be done. And as you're serving in the spirit, those are just times that the Lord ministers to your heart and you begin to have a care for people. And uh, it's 
often the case that those people that serve well as deacons become very bold. And by, so Acts chapter 6, Philip becomes a deacon. By Acts chapter 7, Stephen, one of the first deacons, gets to preach the gospel to the Sanhedrin, and he's the first martyr of the faith. He dies in Acts chapter 7. By Acts chapter 8, revival starts to spread out of Jerusalem and up into Samaria, uh, kind of in that uh, Tyre, Sidon. Uh, well, that would be too high, actually. Uh, it would be just right of that Caesarea Martima um, area. It would be Samaria. And, um, and Philip is a part of that revival, and then he goes and shares the gospel with the Ethiopian eunuch, and he's just an evangelist. And by this point in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 21, he has this nickname, um, Philip the Evangelist. And I would like that nickname. You know, I don't know. Would you like that nickname? And maybe right now it's like, well, why would I have that? I don't ever evangelize. And it's like, well, Lord, make me an evangelist. Make me someone who's sharing the gospel all the time. And then we would have Heidi's the evangelist and Susie's the evangelist. And, you know, uh, Holly the evangelist, Sarah the evangelist, all kinds of events. Like everyone have that nickname around here. (laughs) It's more of a team name, really. It's a team name, you know, got the mascots. Um, Something special about this guy, though, is that he has seven virgin daughters who prophesy. Just seven just beautiful girls who have integrity and have virtue and have character and are walking in the spirit. And why wouldn't they with a dad like Philip? You know, someone who's serving the Lord and leading his home to serve the Lord. Uh, Today after service, I had um, the Rickabaugh family kind of come right up to me after Prineville service and Uh, We had a death in our church this last week. A 45-year-old had a heart attack, and um, the family of the deceased was close to the Rickabaws. And so the Rickabaws just ran up to, like, share about how the Lord was using their family to minister to this hurting family. And and it was just kind of neat. You know, we had the mom, Patty, and then uh, we had Caitlin and, uh, let's see if I get Laura, and their kind of adopted daughter, Angelina and um, Melanie, you know, just these four beautiful girls that love the Lord. And they're, uh, three of them are old enough that they're in college and they're leaving this week to go to Bible college in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, you know, and it's like, like, it's like Philip the Evangelist house here, you know, and just what a wonderful thing. And it's just encouragement for us to provide such an atmosphere in our home where integrity and virtue and character are being instilled into our children and uh, teaching them about um, morality, um, but for the purpose of the glory of God. And, and not only purity and morality, but charisma, you know, they were charismatics, you know, they were full of the Holy Spirit, and they spent time speaking forth the heart of the Lord. And, uh, and prophecy often leads to prophecy. In fact, you know, when you study prophecy in First Corinthians, you know, it's like, Let's limit it to a certain number. You know, what is it in First Corinthians? Three or four at the most or something like that, you know, or two or three. Because uh, it's a good thing. Like, sometimes it's like, oh, man, now I feel like I got something to share. So they share. And and, uh, and so these girls, apparently, let's say that seven of them prophesied, <laughs> you know. Um, then we've got another person who has something to share uh, in their fellowship time. And it's in verse 10. And as we stayed many days, a certain prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. You might remember Agabus from Acts chapter 11, verse 28, 
Agabus stood up in a prayer meeting and showed by the spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout the world that happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. So he prophesied there would be a famine and there was a famine. Uh, and so he's going to stand up now and say something. And, you know, at the time it was prophesied of a famine and maybe they're like, maybe he'll prophesy something good. <laughs> you know, like, like, oh, there's going to be a, what's the opposite of recession? There's a progression. And yeah, I don't know. Have we ever had one of those? Have you guys ever knew? Man, it's been a good season as Americans, right? We're in a progression. Cause like, I don't think that's a I thing, know. you know, <laughs> We're in a, the opposite of depression, you know. It's all rainbows and unicorns, right? There is a word for it. There is a word for it. We've all agreed there is a word for it. <laughs> you know, I never took an economics class, so it's not on me to know this. You know, you know so, you know, but, oh, maybe he'll prophesy, like, there's going to be a revival, you know. Yay! You know, and sadly, that's not exactly what the Lord is speaking to him at this time. So, what's he do? This is kind of interesting, isn't it? Verse 11, when he come to us, he took Paul's belt, probably did that thing that your dad used to do where he takes his belt and he folds it in half and then he goes, snap, snap, snap. (laughs) Yeah, that's what Agabus did. (laughs) Yeah, stick your hand in there. Um, Should bend over, Paul. No, he took Paul's belt. And by the way, this belt, it can speak of like kind of the sash that you see like in scripture, sometimes kind of a long sash. Um, because it's long enough that he's able to bind his own hands and his feet. Sometimes when we're having little branding clinics, we do that. Like, pretend to be the calf, you know, and then you bind your hands and your, you know. Uh, so Agabus binds his hands. Yeah, so just, just me and me. Um, <laughs> I mean, just have to work it out first before I teach it to people. Um, you guys, this is my time to talk. Okay. <laughs> So, however he does it, with no assistance from the crowd, uh, he binds his hands and his feet. And, uh, yeah, right, I know, it's hard to. And he made a calf noise. No. Uh, He said, thus says the Holy Spirit, so shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hand of the Gentiles. Now, when he'd heard these things, both we and those from that place pleaded with him not to go up to Jerusalem. So uh, when you read the scriptures, prophets will often use visual aids during their prophecing to really drive home their point. Back in the Kings, Ahijah um, had a garment torn into 12 pieces, and that was a symbol of the division of the land of Israel. Um, Elijah would take, uh, uh, would have a king use um, arrows and strike the ground, and the number of strikes that this king did signified the number, the amount of victory. And unfortunately, the king did not do enough strikes on the ground, and so, you know, the prophet was like, if you would have done one more, you'd totally won, but... You know, it's like, well, I didn't know, you know, you know, uh, so a lot of times these visual aids, they didn't have PowerPoint back in the day, you know, so they'd have to use all kinds of uh, special tricks. But uh, Jeremiah, I like what my notes say here, Jeremiah and a rotten loincloth. So that was, that's a fun one. And then <laughs> the smashed pots, you know, things like that. Now, 
people desperately loved Paul and didn't want to see harm come to him. And so they all begged and pleaded for him uh, not to go to Jerusalem. And if you look back in Acts chapter 20, verse 22 through 26, uh, Paul wasn't concerned if any harm came to him, you know, where he says, And see now I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. And so in chapter 21 today, we've seen that twice already, um, that the Holy Spirit's testifying this. But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And indeed, now I know that you all, among whom I've gone preaching the kingdom of God, will see my face no, uh, no more. So Paul was aware of this, and he kept on in uh, heading to Jerusalem. In verse 13 of our text, Paul answers, What do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? I often say that when I invite people over or something and if they say they can't make it and I say, what are you doing? Weep, you know, breaking my heart. Don't go breaking my heart. Um, Paul says that here. By all your crying and your begging and your pleading, this is not helping. This is not building up courage to me. Um, I'm ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. So this is great commitment to what he feels the Lord is directing him towards. Uh, Paul Bear Bryant, former University of Alabama football coach, said that there's no substitute for guts. And Paul certainly is walking in great courage and bravery. Winston Churchill during World War II, I think it was around the time of uh, the British uh, retreat out of France in Dunkirk, said, this is no time for ease and comfort. It is the time to dare and endure. And so Paul's just like, man, this isn't the time to not be arrested. This is the time to be going and going and preaching the gospel. And uh, in verse 14, it says, when, we, when he would not be persuaded, we ceased saying, and I like the we because it means that Luke uh, was involved in that. We ceased saying, the will of the Lord be done. Thomas Jefferson said, one man with courage is a majority. And here Paul is saying, man, we're going, I'm going to Jerusalem. Um, I've got to go. I've got to testify to the Lord there. I've got to be there for Passover. Now, something surprising in this chapter, and maybe your mind has gone there, is that the promptings of the Spirit seem to be in direct opposite correlation to one another. On one hand, we've got Paul bound and determined to go to Jerusalem for Pentecost. And back in 1921... It says, uh, Paul purposed in the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. In Acts 20, 22, Paul says, I go bound in the Spirit. Now, the Spirit warned of the hardship that Paul would face in Jerusalem, and the disciples all warned him not to be a part of it. So, on one hand, you've got Paul purposing in the Spirit, bound in the spirit to go to Jerusalem. On the other hand, all of his friends, his traveling companions, his gifted brothers, the prophets in the Lord, the disciples in the cities, they're telling him not to go to Jerusalem. Think of who's warning Paul right now. Luke. I mean, these aren't just like random guys that he found on the street. It's Luke. 
It's Silas. It's Timothy. It's men from Macedonia that has a special place in Paul's heart. Philip the Evangelist, his four virgin prophesying daughters. Agabus, a trusted prophet, all begging Paul not to go. Um, So, what do you do in a moment like that? You know, what do you do when it's, you know, are you hearing from the Lord? Remember Adam told me a story once. He said, uh, a storm descends on a small town and the downpour soon turns into a flood. As the waters rise, the local preacher kneels in prayer on the church's front porch. Surrounded by water, by and by, one of the townsfolk comes up the street in a canoe. Better get in, preacher. The waters are rising fast. No, says the preacher. I have faith in the Lord. He will save me. Still the waters rise. Now the preacher's up on the balcony, wringing his hands in supplication when another guy zips by on a motorboat. Uh, He says, uh, come on, preacher. We need to get you out of here. The levee's going to break at any minute. Once again, the preacher's unmoved. I shall remain. The Lord will see me through. After a while, the levee breaks. And the flood rushes over the church until only the steeple remains above water. The preacher's up there clinging to the cross when a helicopter descends out of the clouds and a state trooper calls down to him through a megaphone. Grab the ladder, preacher. This is your last chance. Once again, the preacher insists that the Lord will deliver him. And predictably, he drowns. That's the end of the story. No. A pious man, the preacher, goes to heaven. After a while, he gets an interview with the Lord and he asks the Almighty, Lord, I had an unwavering faith in you. Why didn't you deliver me from that flood? God shakes his head. What did you want from me? I sent you two boats and a helicopter. So who is right in this moment? You've got Paul the Apostle and you've got people binding themselves with belts. You've got four virgin daughters who are prophesying. You've got the saints from Macedonia. You've got Timothy and Silas. And Paul's going, and he's going to be bound. And, and man, you had your chance, Paul. I'm sorry, you just had your chance. You know, was Paul being foolish here, or what is going on? Was it the will of God for Paul to go to Jerusalem? Would you believe that some actually say no, like that Paul should not have gone to Jerusalem here? Paul was in the flesh, and he was being stubborn and strong-willed. He had a heart to reach the Jews, but that wasn't his ministry anymore. And so he just shouldn't have headed that direction. Others say it was the will of God for him to go to Jerusalem. The spirit was just warning Paul of what was ahead. Paul already knew. Remember back when he got saved and uh, Ananias from the street called straight uh, from Damascus, I should say. Uh, I think he was on the streets called straight. Uh, Ananias was praying and the Lord said, I've been showing Paul all the things that he's got to suffer for my sake. So Paul has been aware since day one that he was going to suffer many things. Um, We know that the Holy Spirit doesn't contradict. So what's going on here? Um, I think it's just very fitting to say that the Holy Spirit definitely was speaking through all the prophets and all the brothers and all the sisters but they were drawing the conclusion and the application from it that wasn't from the Lord. Uh, and that is, yes, Paul needed to know what was going to be awaiting him there, but they were not exactly making the right application from that. When you read a lot of missionaries, they have similar things happen to them. A guy named John Patton, and if you ever get a chance to read John Patton's biography, it is a 
amazing. I mean, they got to make a movie about this guy. Um, but because I don't have time to get into it, just the simple part is that he was from Scotland and he was feeling called to go to the island of the New Hebrides down by New Zealand, Australia. And the missionaries that had just gone before him were let off the ship onto little rowboats and they took the rowboats into the islands and then the rowboats turned back and the people were on the shore and all of the um, cannibals came out of the jungle, speared the people and ate them right in front of the ship. And so uh, the ship then went back to Scotland, reported what had happened to the beloved Christians and all of a sudden John Patton's like, I'm going. And everyone says to him, John, you'll be eaten by cannibals. And John goes, whether I'm eaten by worms or by cannibals, it doesn't matter. Like, I'm going to be eaten nonetheless. These people need to hear about Jesus. Or Jim Elliott, he was actually an Oregonian, wrestled up in Portland for Portland High School, ended up going to Wheaton and be just an incredible uh, minister and a great preacher. And he felt called to the Alcas in Ecuador and so many people told him, don't leave, don't go to the Alcas. America needs good preachers. Gladys Elward uh, was protected by the missionary agent. They would not let this tiny little woman with straight black hair go on a mission, but she went anyways. She got off the boat at China and writes in her diary that she looked across the dock and all she saw around her were tiny little women with short black hair, just like hers, and ended up having an incredible ministry there. And so the best of men are men at best. Um, I know that uh, John Corson didn't want Rob Verdine to go to Corvallis. He didn't think it would be a good fit for him. Um, George Verville writes, there are no closed countries going in, but they may be closed going out. Oswald Sanders tells the story of a young man beginning a career as a coast, at the Coast Guard, and he went out into a storm to save a ship in distress. As the rescue vessel began to head into the storm, the young man shouted to the captain, we will never get back, to which the captain replied, we don't have to come back, but we do have to go out. Guys, something that's been helpful for me over the years is that it is a possibility to know the will of God as we seek the Lord. I just want to give you a few things to put into your arsenal to know the will of the Lord when people are prophesying against, but your uh, heart is telling you another direction. What do you do in these times? First thing, open up your Bible and saturate yourself in the word. Picture a traveler carrying a lantern. You carry that little lantern and the light is progressive around you. You only kind of see what's around you. But the word tells us that it's a light unto our feet or a, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. God will never lead us somewhere that deviates from the plumb line of scripture. It always points true north. Secondly, bathe the situation in prayer. So often we forget to pray and we see in the scripture that so much happens when we pray versus when we don't pray. When we ask and when we seek and when we keep knocking, not us persuading God about our will, but uh, lining us up to his will. It's kind of Christian jargon these days to say that we've been praying. Oh, I've been praying about that, but have we really been praying? 
Like it's good to find some quiet space and get on our knees and ask the Lord about whatever situation we've got before us. So submersing yourself in the word, bathing your situation in prayer, adding fasting to your prayer. When you look at the scripture, the Lord moves in ways when fasting is added to prayer, when uh, in, a, in a way that's even more powerful and mighty and victorious than he does when fasting is not added to prayer. And so I know that this church, we haven't done a ton with fasting, um, but we found it in Prineville to be an incredible weapon of our uh, warfare. And uh, as we deny food, we digest the will of the Lord and You might just write in your notes, Judges chapter 20 is an incredible story of victory through fasting. Acts chapter 13, there's calls towards ministry because of fasting. In Ezra 8, 21, Ezra proclaims a fast by the river Ahava, uh, and they fasted so that they could know the will of the Lord for their possessions and their property and their family and their little ones. And so if you don't know what to do with the school situation right now, do we homeschool? Do we this, that, or the other? You know what? Like go to the Lord with prayer. Go to the Lord with fasting. He'll lead you. Um, Something to help you discern the will of the Lord is do you have a peace? Is there a peace in your heart about it? In Colossians 3.15, it says, and let the peace of God rule in your hearts. The Greek for that word rule, A.T. Robertson, Greek scholar, likened it to an umpire in like a baseball match. He said the best way to kind of describe how this, what this ruling looks like is it's like what an umpire does with baseball, you know, and peace can help lead us in those directions and give us directions. Um, I have a quote here from Blaine. If you remember Blaine from the church in Prineville, now he lives in Corvallis, but uh, the, the peace of the Lord is like a lead blanket on your heart. <laughs> I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. You know, Without the peace of the Lord, is it like having a lead blanket on you? But Russell got a weighted blanket for, was that your birthday or what was that for? He got the, he packs this like 30 pound blanket around the house with him and he's like, hold on, let me get my lead blanket, you know? And then he, you know, and uh, I don't get it, but it really helps him sleep, I guess. So some people think it's a good thing, okay? Uh, but the peace of the Lord, and I would just tell you, you know, if you're about to go into something and you're like, well, I prayed about it and I've been reading the word, I'm, I'm going to do it, but there's still not a peace. I'd encourage you to just wait a little bit more. I found that there's something so good about this. I don't think so. Um, fifth thing I want to give you is the spirit of God leading us in Romans eight fourteen. You know that as many as that are led by the spirit, these are the sons and daughters of God. Um, through wise counsel, seeking wise counsel, Proverbs eleven fourteen says, where there is no counsel, the people fall, but in the multitude of counselors, there is safety. In Proverbs twelve fifteen, the way of the fool is right in his own eyes, but he who heeds counsel is wise. It's foolish to not care about anybody else's opinions or their thoughts towards what you're doing. It's wisdom to let people speak truth into your life and your situation. A lot of times we call this, when we have brothers and sisters in our life, they help check our blind spots. You know, have you ever driven and, you know, uh, this has happened to me a couple times, like on I-5. 
uh, drive in and you're like, I'm going to pass and you like cut off somebody because they were right in that blind spot. And it's like, man, we have those in our life where oh, I'm thinking, I'm totally thinking about what this is going to mean for me. And it's just awesome. And it's so great. And this and that and the other. And sometimes that, well, a lot of times it's our spouse, you know, or maybe our kid speaks up from the back seat and you're like, shut up already. You know, uh, it's so good to have friends that are like, hey, have you thought about what it's going to mean for, you know, your walk with the Lord or with your church body life or that ministry that you're a part of or your finances and this and that? Um, wise counsel helps us in all of these things. Um, that all being said, in this case, everyone in Paul's life was telling him not to go to Jerusalem. So kind of at the end of the day, you've got to be true to like, have you been seeking the Lord? Are you in the word? Are you in prayer? Have you been fasting? Do you have a peace in your heart? Have you been seeking wise counsel? A year ago uh, in July, we sat in Corvallis at a leadership conference with Pastor David Guzik. And it was all the Oregon Calvary pastors. And we had this thing in front of us of like, what do we do as a church with COVID? And we got pastors from like the Portland area who are really going like the mask up direction. We got guys from more rural areas that are, you know, we got guys over on this side that are like really vocally like hostile against it, you know, and we're all like, where do we fit into this craziness? And we're just all like processing it with about 50 pastors. And I just love what David Guzik says is he's like, if you can look me in the eye and tell me that you have sought the Lord as to what to do. You and your elders have sought the Lord as to what to do for your church. He's like, I would support you 150% um, no matter what call you made. And it was like, that just stuck with me uh, over the year because there's been so many times where it's like, I mean, I knew right away what I'd do when I first heard different things. I'm like, I'll tell you what I'm gonna do, you know, this, that. And, and then the Lord's like, how about you just go ahead and simmer down a little bit, you know? And then we'd have elders meetings and Zoom calls and we would fast and we would come together and the Lord would just give us words of wisdom on what to do. Waiting on the Lord is such a good thing. And that's maybe the, the latter part to give to you is waiting on the Lord. Um, someone once said, season the situation with time. Get it? Um, T-H-Y-M-E. Time. Okay. Season it with time. I don't know. I don't use that anyways. Uh, or someone said, put time on your side. And anyone here, like you've done that, you've just like, you could have just bold dogged it and just gone right into it. But you're like, we're just going to wait a little bit. Nobody, nobody ever does that. <laughs> and how's that work for you, Holly? Just kidding. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So great. You know, Psalm 25 and 27 and 40, 69, 130, 40, you know, all these lamentations, like all these different scriptures about waiting on the Lord. It's good to wait on the Lord. Um, and so my, one of my wise counselors said, I rarely, if ever, regret a decision where I have saturated the uh, situation in the word, where I've bathed it in prayer, where I've been led by the spirit, where I've sought wise counsel, where I've waited on the Lord and experienced a peace in my heart and so ultimately make the decision in faith and the lord is a rewarder of those who diligently seek them seek him um and so that's about as far as we're gonna go just kind of a little lesson from i mean i don't know if you noticed that i hope you caught it that 
I mean, every time people are speaking to Paul, they're saying, it's like the Spirit is saying this. And I don't know if you've ever had those things where they're like, the Lord says this. And you're like, I don't know what to do with that because I'm totally feeling a different direction. And uh, someone put it really well in my notes. Uh, I think it was uh, the prophetic word was a prediction, not a prohibition. The warning was divine, but the deduction was human. His word is fixed in the heavens, not ours. Our deduction can be fallible, and we need to be humble enough to admit it. <laughs> Yeah. Put that in your Bible study journal. <laughs> uh, I think it was me. I think that was my old notes. Yeah, I think that was an Alistair Begg thing. Yeah, in fact, it says Begg, so I don't think I know it. <laughs> All right. Anybody have a testimony of any of that kind of stuff? I don't. Let's just say I may or may not have rushed into a Ford flatbed pretty quickly. They sell really well right now. Uh, they sell really well right now. Sounds like the Lord might have been in this. Thank you, Alan. You are my Agabus.